Today on Golden Girls Sports, we take a long look at B. Arthur, one of the most accomplished, complex, and iconic figures in American TV history. Marcus Allen. Mike Tyson. Extra innings. The tight end decoys, so it looks like we're running a draw play. Magic Johnson. Bobby Old. Tampa Bay Bucks. And they're off! The pig takes the lead. The chicken. All Bets Are Off premiered on April 28, 1990, the penultimate episode of the show's fifth season. It was written by Eugene B. Stein and directed by Terry Hughes. When Blanche suggests that the other girls go to the track, so that they can meet men and Rose can get help in her painting of horses, Dorothy is at first reluctant. But she relents and they have a good time. Rose even wins a little money. But when they get back to the house, Sophia is pissed off. And we learn something that had been a secret for the previous 126 episodes. Dorothy has been suppressing a gambling addiction. What the hell were you doing at the racetrack? Oh, Ma, come on. You're making too much of this. I haven't gambled in 15 years, and I didn't put down any bets for myself today either. It was just nice to know that I could still pick a winner. This from a woman who's got a Dukakis bumper sticker covering up her Mondale bumper sticker? Look, Ma, I admit that once I did have a small gambling problem. A small problem? You bet against your own son's Little League team. <laughs> I had to. I knew that their star pitcher had after-school detention. You were his teacher. You gave him detention. <laughs> of all the things you could have inherited from your father, you had to pick this damn gambling disease. Oh, Ma, will you get off my back? Now, come on, you don't have to worry about me. I had a nice day at the track, and that's that. And Pop did not have a problem. Dorothy, I spent too many years denying your father's addiction. He was a gambler to his dying day. In fact, his last words were, 10 bucks says I don't need this oxygen tank. (laughs) Unfortunately, despite her confirmations to the contrary, Dorothy slips off the wagon and begins betting regularly again. She even misses a job interview so that she can place a bet on a horse named Ma's Mouth. Also, unfortunately, Ma's Mouth is exactly what she hears later. Dorothy's born act, you're in big trouble. What? What did I do? You lied to me. That's what you did. I was going through your purse and look at what I found. Betting slips. You went to the track again. How could you, Dorothy? I've spent the best years of my life trying to give you a sense of moral responsibility. Ma, what were you doing in my purse? Stealing. (laughs) The situation really weighs heavily on Sophia. She remembers when Dorothy got in deep with some loan sharks, and they had to cash out Sal's life insurance to pay them back. Meanwhile, Dorothy keeps sinking lower and lower until she finally hits rock bottom. Look, Rose, I need the money. You're just going to have to trust me. Well, of course I trust you. You're my best friend. You can take everything I have. Well, don't give me everything you have. I mean, all I need is a couple hundred bucks, you know, so that I can... Oh, you don't owe me any explanation. Here. I want you to take my bank card and take as much money as you need and pay me back whenever you can. Oh, thanks a lot. And don't you worry, I'll have this money back before you know it. Oh, no, no hurry. I trust you completely. Yeah, well, Rose, I mean, you shouldn't trust anyone completely. 
Dorothy, if I can't trust you, whom can I trust? You're practically a sister to me. Yeah, well, sisters often lie, Rose, and even best friends take advantage of each other occasionally. I don't think so. Rose, you should. You're being very naive. I'm not naive. Yes, you are. You are being naive now. Don't you see? I'm stealing your money. I know, Dorothy. But I was hoping you'd have a hard time taking advantage of somebody who cares about you as much as I do. I need help, Rose. Oh, God, I hate the lying. Dorothy, I lied to you, too. You could never have used that bank card. <laughs> you don't have my personal identification number, and you'd never guess it in a thousand years. Rose, honey, it's right here. You've written it on the card. Well, that's because I have trouble guessing it, too. After coming to her senses, Dorothy enters Gamblers Anonymous for the first time in 15 years. She didn't expect to be back, but she now knows that she needs help with her addiction, and it's going to take even more time to get it back under control. We'll talk about the history of the sport of kings in our next episode, when we explore the many other horse racing references on the Golden Girls. The practice hasn't changed all that much in the last 300 years or so, so another week probably won't be a big deal. All Bets Are Off was the only Golden Girls script for writer Eugene Stein. His credits list is pretty small, but he did write a couple of episodes each of Murphy Brown and Duckman. Terry Hughes, on the other hand, directed over 100 Golden Girls episodes, and this was his final one. Hughes started his directing career in his native England in the late 60s after first working as a record producer. He graduated from a BBC film and television directing program and earned prominence in a slew of BAFTA nominations by helming comedy show The Two Ronnies throughout the 70s. In 1982, he directed both Monty Python Live at the Hollywood Bowl and a TV movie version of Sweeney Todd starring Angela Lansbury, which earned him an Emmy for outstanding directing of a variety or music program. After coming to America, but before coming to the Golden Girls, Hughes directed eight episodes of CBS high school comedy Square Pegs, which starred a very young Sarah Jessica Parker, among others. In her book, Here We Go Again, Betty White describes the actress's first meeting with the man who would essentially be steering their ship for the foreseeable future. Quote, They thought a good way for us to get acquainted would be to have a lunch together. So a catered luncheon was brought in and set up in a very small room down the hall that barely accommodated the table in five chairs. Yes, just five. After producers Paul Witt and Tony Thomas got us situated, they went out and closed the door, leaving poor Terry Hughes alone with the four dragons. By the time we emerged from that little dining room, we had all fallen in love with this charming Britisher. The vote was unanimous and he was our director, which I'm sure came as no surprise to Paul and Tony." End quote. He joined the Golden Girls midway through the first season with the episode The Custody Battle. That's the one where Dorothy's sister Gloria wants to bring Sophia back to California with her. In that first season alone, Hughes also directed A Bed of Roses, The Flu, A Little Romance, some of the show's truly classic episodes. He said in Golden Girls Forever, quote, In this first season, the show had a run of episodes that were not only funny and heartwarming, but were about things I hadn't seen before on TV. One episode after another, the show was going like gangbusters we hit a stride that was becoming unstoppable, end quote. Hughes was a big reason that the show kept that stride going. He directed 108 of the Golden Girls' first 125 episodes, 
and was credited by White and McClanahan in particular as being as important to the show as its writers and producers. White says that Hughes didn't coddle them or isolate them from the writers as earlier director Paul Bogart had. The relationship flourished, and as each Golden Girl won Emmys for her work, so did Hughes, taking home the Outstanding Directing of a Comedy Series trophy in 1987. He was nominated for the same award every year in which he worked on the show. In 1991, Hughes left the Golden Girls for feature films, directing The Butcher's Wife with Demi Moore and Jeff Daniels. The time had come, but the girls didn't want to see him go. McClanahan said that she cried so hard at his last taping that she couldn't attend the going away part. Unfortunately, the movie bombed and earned little except for a bunch of Razzie nominations. Hughes went back to TV and directed the pilot episodes for Blossom and The Golden Palace, as well as all 11 episodes of the awful post-apocalyptic Fox sitcom Whoops. He rebounded in a big way and found more sustained success later in the 90s as director and producer on over 100 episodes of Third Rock from the Sun. Gigs on Friends, Ain't Simple Rules, and Whoopi followed, and as of 2015, he had directed a dozen episodes of TV Land's The Exes. Ironically for us today, Hughes is also an avid horseman, owning, racing, and raising them while he was living in California's San Inez Valley. He came to love horses on his grandfather's dairy farm while growing up in England and made them his primary hobby when he and his wife moved to America in 1979. According to Wikipedia, he currently lives in Texas, where I'm assuming he spends some more time around horses too. After Hughes left the show, it took a while for the Golden Girls to find another regular director. B. Arthur in particular was tough on them, and, according to McClanahan, essentially vetoed one because he preferred to wear his baseball caps backwards. But that was B. Arthur in a nutshell, a performer capable of captivating an audience in any medium, but who required conditions to be just to her liking in order to feel comfortable. While she was known for playing intimidating characters and wasn't shy about voicing her displeasure on set, she would be described as introverted by the few people close to her in her personal life. All Bets Are Off was something very much in keeping with the kind of shows that B. Arthur shined in. It was about something real, but still highly entertaining and funny. It was saying, this is a problem that people have, and if you have it, you're not alone, so let's laugh about it. It's a philosophy that would carry her career to incredible heights and inform her private life as well. It all started in Brooklyn, where Bernice Frankel was born on May 13, 1922, to Rebecca and Philip Frankel. When Bernice was 11, she, her parents, and her sister Kay moved to Cambridge, Maryland, a small town on the state's eastern shore. Her father ran a clothing store, and the Frankels were one of the few Jewish families in Cambridge. Even at this time, she started obsessing over movie stars like Cary Grant and Mae West, whom she could do a killer impersonation of, and preferred going just by B. According to her sister, at 13, B was smoking and a runaway and already five foot nine, the height that would be a blessing and a curse to her throughout her acting career. Young B found solace in going to movies and imagining herself as a small blonde singer and actress. In school plays, she often played boys' roles thanks to that deep voice and height. She attended Cambridge High School and a boarding school in Pennsylvania, and then Blackstone College, a historic all-girls school in Virginia. After graduating, she went to the Franklin Institute of Science and Arts, where she studied to be a medical laboratory technician. 
For a year, she worked in that field. But soon, taking urine samples didn't seem as fulfilling as performing. In 1943, Bernice Frankel enlisted in the Marines and served as a typist in the Corps' Washington, D.C. headquarters. During her interview period, she was described by an officer as, quote, argumentative and, quote, officious, but probably a good worker if she has her own way, end quote. She would spend the next two years also stationed in Virginia and North Carolina and added truck driver to her list of duties. She rose from private to the rank of staff sergeant before her discharge in 1945. The Marines were also where B met her first husband, a fellow enlisted man named Robert Arthur. Note the extra U in Arthur here. They were married about a year into her service, and military records show that at some point she officially changed her name to Bernice Arthur. B denied her service in later interviews, so either there was another Bernice Frankel who enlisted in the Marines about that time, or B was trying to write her story her way and decided that she just didn't need that part. In 1947, she enrolled at the Dramatic Workshop of the New School in New York. After being B for a few years at that point, she decided that Beatrice would look great on a marquee, so she went by that professionally. Her classmates at the workshop were a mini cavalcade of stars, Walter Matthau, Rod Steiger, Harry Belafonte, and Tony Curtis among them. Meanwhile, her husband Robert was on his way to becoming a TV writer. She was guided to and shined in classical plays and Shakespeare. The problem was that, after graduating, she had trouble finding those roles out in the real world. So, like Betty White and Rue McClanahan, she did summer stock. B also sang in nightclubs, but hated the life of a chanteuse. Soon, a club promoter urged her to get into comedy and use her imposing physicality and confidence to her advantage. At first, she resisted, determined to use that classical training to become an actor. Everything changed in 1954 with Three Penny Opera, the off-Broadway Mark Blitzstein translation of the play by Bertolt Brecht and Elizabeth Hauptmann with music by Kurt Weill. B auditioned as a singer, but immediately recognized that she got laughs from her delivery and realized that there was something real there. She started the show as Lucy Brown alongside Charlotte Ray, Jerry Orbach, Paul Dooley, Jerry Stiller, John Astin, and Lottie Lenya the Austrian actress and Kurt Weill's wife, whom B would count as an influence. For B, Three Penny Opera was the first time standing by herself on stage. And it not only brought her her first taste of notoriety, but confidence and a better sense of who she was as a performer. She always credited Three Penny Opera as her breakout role. I used to believe in the days I was pure. And I was pure like you used to be My wonderful someone will come to me someday And then it will all depend on me If he's a fine man, if he's a rich man Wears a fine cravat, smokes a cigar And if he's gallant and treats me like a lady Then I shall tell him Sorry. Chin up high, keep your powder dry, don't relax or go too far. Next, she did a summer review at Camp Tanament in the Poconos with Dick Sean and left Three Penny Opera to understudy Tolula Bankhead in an out-of-town version of the Siegfeld Follies. 
Working with a screen legend left a real impression on her, especially when Bankhead told her she didn't have the bone structure to be a star. B and Robert Arthur were divorced in 1950, the same year she married director Gene Sachs, whom she had met at a theater group that she started with some friends. A native New Yorker, Sachs started as a stage actor, but moved into directing plays in the early 60s. He started with Joseph Stein and Carl Reiner's Enter Laughing, and would go on to direct Mame, starring B and Angela Lansbury, as well as Same Time Next Year and California Suite. He directed a few notable feature films too, including Barefoot in the Park with Jane Fonda and Robert Redford, and the original Odd Couple with Jack Lemmon and Walter Matthau. He also directed one notorious movie we'll talk about in a couple of minutes. The couple adopted two sons, Matthew, born in 1961, and Daniel, born in 1964. Both went on to work in show business like their parents. Matthew was a character actor, popping up in A Few Good Men, Robin Hood Men in Tights, A Couple of Murder She Wrotes, and one time on The Golden Girls, where he played a cop on the season 7 episode The Monkey Show. Daniel became, and still is, a very sought-after art director in Hollywood, and has worked on Empty Nest, Dharma and Greg, How I Met Your Mother, and The Mindy Project, among many others. Matthew now works at home construction and landscaping. In 1954, B took a role in another musical called The Shoestring Review. Her big number in the show was a song called Garbage, in which she laments an abusive relationship. Watching in the audience one night was a young writer named Norman Lear, who would go on to be a friend and collaborator of B's for decades. Your cruelty to me done hit me like a hammer. Done destroyed my heart and soul, and most of all my grammar. Oh, you treated me like, like dirt, like trash, flotsam, jetsam, rubbish, refuse, garbage. Behind my back, you called me Five years after watching her sing in the Shoestring Review, Lear would call B to ask if she wanted to work on The George Goebel Show, a comedy program that was a combination of skits and monologues starring its namesake. By the time B joined Goebel, the show was in its final season, and she had already had experience on early TV shows like Craft Theater, The Ed Sullivan Show, and Sid Caesar's Hour, where she had walk-on parts known as Under Fives because that was the number of lines she had. She learned a lot of lessons from Sid Caesar, the rubber-faced star of Your Show of Shows, particularly in terms of the hard work and dedication it takes to make a top-flight TV show and the value of not hesitating to be outrageous. Even in the 60s, while only in her 40s and the mother of two small kids, B was already playing mothers to ingenues like Joey Heatherton on film and TV. But on stage, she was a star. In 1964, B was in the original production of Fiddler on the Roof, which we talked about back in episode one of this podcast. She was offered the part of Goldie, Tevia's wife, but she wanted to play Yenti, the gossip-loving matchmaker. At first, the part was juicy and fun, but after preview performances, the role was reduced in importance by director Jerome Robbins, who told B it wasn't a play about a matchmaker. She wanted out of the show, but she couldn't because Gene Sachs had contracted hepatitis, making B the sole breadwinner of the family. In 
Her singing still appears on the original recording of Fiddler. When she was finally free, her next project was Mame, the musical starring Lansbury and directed by Sachs that would bring all of them popular and critical acclaim. B played lush Vera Charles, the musical comedy star of Broadway and best friend of Lansbury's title character. Both actresses won Tonys for their work in 1966, and they would become best friends offstage. B loved Angie's unpredictability. Quote, When I first met her, I thought I was meeting this classy, patrician, classically trained actor, but she has a mouth like a longshoreman. She started in British Music Hall, you see, and loved telling dirty limericks. She taught me the words to, What can you get a nudist for her birthday, which is really saucy. End quote. Unfortunately, B's association with Mame ended on a sour note. In 1974, she recreated her part for the movie version, which was directed by Sachs, but which starred Lucille Ball and not Lansbury in the title role. A critical and commercial bomb, B wasn't shy about her feelings on the film, calling it an embarrassment that she regretted doing for the rest of her career. She said that Lucy, great as she was, wasn't right for the part of Mame and that Sachs essentially guilt-tripped his wife into doing the project, even though they knew it would be a mistake. The movie's reception, along with B's ascendance as a TV star throughout the decade, will contribute to their divorce in the late 70s. B. Arthur has just a few feature films to her credit. Lovers and Other Strangers, written by Joseph Bologna and Renee Taylor, and which we mentioned on a previous episode, was one movie that she enjoyed. She also was in That Kind of Woman, directed by Sidney Lumet, and The History of the World Part 1 as the uncredited Roman unemployment insurance officer that gives Mel Brooks the business. Next. Occupation. Stand-up philosopher. What? Stand-up philosopher. I coalesce the vapor of human experience into a viable and logical comprehension. Oh, a bullshit artist. Mm. Did you bullshit last week? No. Did you try to bullshit last week? Yes. Comicus! 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 Back in the line! Back in the line! He's not in line, he's not in line, he's my agent, Swiftus. Good news, I just got you a job. Now that you're working, you won't be needing this. Wait a minute, that money is mine. I'm sorry, I'm on my wine break. She did have other movie offers, but didn't feel the parts were there. One later production was For Better or Worse, a small grossing movie directed by Jason Alexander in 1995. B ended up refusing a screen credit because the part was so small and she didn't feel she did a particularly good job on it. But let's get back to TV with her biggest break yet. In 1972, Norman Lear was the creator, producer, and writer of All in the Family. He not only wanted to work with B again, but he wanted to introduce a character into the show's first season that could go thick head to thick head with Carol O'Connor's Archie Bunker. So he wrote for her the part of Edith's cousin Maud, who would come to the house in Queens to take care of the ill Bunker clan. The character was based on Lear's own wife Frances, who herself was a vocal feminist. While Rob Reiner's Mike would argue against Archie's politics on a regular basis, Maud was as fiercely intelligent as she was humanistic, and perhaps a little too intelligent for her own good. By the time she returned to New York, 
B got a call from Lear telling her that the president of CBS said that she should have her own show. In short order, she and her family moved to California to begin production on Maud. After years of Broadway and off-Broadway and bit parts, 50-year-old B. Arthur was thrilled to have her own series on network TV. Arthur would always be proud of the work she did on Maud. She found the show to be fun, creative, and collaborative, and took great care in the characters and stories they were telling, even when Lear and the writers would get into frequent fights with the CBS censors and practices people. Maud was always trying to fight for the rights of others, but the jokes came back to bite her in the end, which B appreciated and felt kept the character real. Frank DeCaro of the New York Times described Maud as, quote, an upscale bleeding heart matron, as misguided as she was well-intentioned, end quote. The characters were ripe for covering a wide range of issues. Maud was married four times and had an adult daughter, played by B's former Fiddler co-star Adrian Barbeau, who was also divorced with a child. Maud's husband, Walter, played by veteran funny man Bill Macy, was an alcoholic businessman who had a best friend who was a haughty, wealthy conservative, played by Conrad Bain. And his wife was a dizzy bubblehead, played by B's future fellow golden girl, Rue McClanahan. The Findlays also had a succession of housekeepers, played by Esther Roll, Hermione Badley, and Marlene Warfield, that would chafe against Maud's liberal hypocrisy. Carol, you don't know how frightening it is for them to come into a brand new situation in a white household. I, for one, intend to make her feel warm and welcome. Well, hello, you must be Mrs. Evans. I hope you didn't have any trouble finding us. Oh, no, ma'am. I heard you all the way from the bus stop. Come in. Oh, of course, of course. Come in, Mrs. Evans. Meet my daughter, Carol. Carol, this is Mrs. Evans. Ma'am? Ma'am? Did I hear you say ma'am? Oh, no. We can't have that in this household. Now, from now on, I want you to call her Carol and me Maud. Now, what shall we call you? Mrs. Evans. The types of stories featured on Maud were cutting edge, even for today. The most famous example is a two-part episode where Maud decides to have an abortion, which was written by future Golden Girls creator Susan Harris. Other topics included drug laws and abuse, alcoholism, suicide, and nervous breakdowns. B said the show, quote, tackled everything but hemorrhoids. The secret to Maud wasn't in the hot-button issues, but in Lear's unequaled ear for comedy. Barbeau told the LA Times in 2015, quote, He was doing it with humor. They were funny. He was never knocking the audience over the head with some socially significant issue he wanted to advance. He was entertaining them, making them laugh, and hopefully making them think a little bit. End quote. B was nominated for five Emmys during Maud's run, winning Outstanding Lead Actress in a Comedy Series in 1977. She admitted she wasn't totally comfortable with the role of feminist icon, once saying that the role, quote, put a lot of unnecessary pressure on her. That might sound surprising given her on-screen persona, but the real B. Arthur was very different than what she appeared to be. When Rue McClanahan returned to New York after filming the first season of Maud, people asked if she was scared to work with B. Arthur. Rue would later write in her book, Scared? 
I had a ball. She was a kick in the pants. The two clicked from the start, and B went out of her way to welcome newcomer Rue to the set. When Rue's mother passed away around Thanksgiving in 1973, B insisted that she come to her house for food, companionship, and a night in her guest room. Rue wrote that she would never forget B. Arthur's loving kindness that night. B. used to say that the things she had in common with Maud Finley and Dorothy's Bornack were that they were all five nine and a half in their stocking feet and had deep voices. She also might have been the only person since Ebenezer or Scrooge to use the phrase stocking feet unironically. Her son Matthew once said that she was most comfortable staying at home and reading a newspaper or making sandwiches for him and his brother. A longtime animal lover, B gave a lot of her time to PETA and was always surrounded by pet dogs that she doted on. And as often as she could, at work or at home, she sauntered around in her bare feet. Rue was also amazed that she went to the post office and did her own grocery shopping. But B. Arthur was also extremely sensitive, timid, and could be brought to tears with just a single offhand comment on set. She cared very much about her art and wanted it to be the very best that it could. And if she thought you were getting in the way or not performing up to her standards, you could find yourself on her shit list. She once said that there was one other thing she and Dorothy had in common, quote, I hate bullshit, end quote. It wasn't unusual for her to be cold towards guest stars or argue with writers or directors over bits she didn't think were working. The constant shots at Dorothy's looks grated on her during the course of the Golden Girls, and she fought to have the characters seen as desirable. She also had a fear of flying and was deathly claustrophobic which became a huge logistical problem when she, White, and McClanahan had to appear to be disembodied heads on their own kitchen table. In everything, B was never not herself. She focused her creative energy on being real and honest, which, to her, is what made her characters funny. She attributes that honesty to creating those devastatingly wordless looks of derision that cut deeper than any single punchline ever could. Jack Benny may have invented it, and transatlantic office counterparts Martin Freeman and John Krasinski are pretty good at it. But nobody was able to deliver a withering reaction glance better than B. Arthur. Cheetah Rivera, who worked with B. on the Shoestring Review all those years ago, said, quote, B. said more with silence than most people said with words. You could imagine what she was thinking, and that was funny, end quote. In its final season, Maud ran for congressional office, and the show was supposed to follow her and Walter to Washington, D.C. But after six years, B felt the show had run its course, a statement she would repeat about a dozen years later. Maud, the character, hadn't changed at all during the series, and would be the same no matter where she went. B didn't want the quality to suffer, and feared they would repeat themselves. And so the show ended in 1978, without the trip to the Capitol. After Maud, B bounced around for a while. Divorced from Gene Sachs, the same year Maud went off the air, she did a musical special, a Woody Allen play named Floating Light Bulbs with Danny Aiello, and the infamous Star Wars Holiday Special. In that godforsaken piece of pop culture effluvium, B played Akmina, a Tatooine bartender who sings a song called Good Night, but not Goodbye, to get the cantina to clear out when the Empire institutes a curfew. B didn't think much of the gig at the time, saying in 2005, quote, I just remember singing to a bunch of people with funny heads, end quote. But little did she realize the power of Star Wars geekdom. I never gave it much thought once we finished with it. 
Uh, but even to this day, I get pictures that fans send, you know, of me and the costume and everything, and please autograph it. And um, apparently it was a big thing, but I've never... I'm, I mean, I was never into the old Star Wars thing, so... But it was... Uh, oh, and you know who was in it? Harvey Corman and I were in a, uh, a bar with aliens and strange-looking people. And it's a lovely piece written by Mitzi and, and uh, Ken Welch. The intervening years brought offers of a lot of Maud-like parts, like judges, cops, or the mothers of cops. One project that actually made it to TV was Amanda's, an American version of the British hit Faulty Towers. After watching an episode of the original, starring bumbling Monty Python alum John Cleese as an insane hotel owner named Basil Faulty, B felt an adaption offered her something new, outside of the realm of the confident, intimidating characters she was known for. Unfortunately, the final scripts didn't resemble the original at all, and the show never really took off. Only 10 of the 13 produced episodes ever made it to air. A few years later, B got wind of a show about four ladies living in a house in Miami that called for a, quote, B. Arthur type in the script. Originally, comedian Elaine Stritch auditioned for the Dorothy role, but by her own admission, she bombed the run-through in front of producers. She sensed right away that her brand of comedy didn't mesh well with sitcoms or their often protective writers. Although she mined the experience for material in her own live shows, Stritch knew that the right person got the part in the end. Quote, I'm so glad it happened to be, making her life certainly a lot more luxurious. But I think if I had gotten the part and been stuck out there in L.A. for seven years, I might never have sobered up. End quote. It's weird to think about it now, when Maud and the Golden Girls can sometimes be seen running concurrently on two separate channels. But getting B. Arthur back on TV was kind of a big deal at the time. And getting that, quote, B. Arthur type to be played by the genuine article was a complex process. NBC president Brandon Tartikoff didn't want her for the role, no matter who Susan Harris had in mind for the Dorothy character. Tartikoff was afraid that viewers would still associate B with the divisive Maud Finley and not give the new show a chance. Eventually, he relented. Rue McClanahan said she had to convince B to take the role because she was concerned that the two of them plus Betty White would be, quote, Maud and Vivian meet Sue Ann Nivens and be treading on old ground for all of them. When Rue told her that she and Betty switched parts, B became more interested. B says that, through her agent, she read the pilot script and loved it, thinking it was adult and smart in a way most shows were not. In the end, how she ended up on the show doesn't really matter. She completed the foursome that made the Golden Girls what they are. Producer Paul Witt called Dorothy the center of calm in the Golden Girls universe, and the character the audience would most identify with. Like Maud, Dorothy was intelligent and believed in making the world a better place. Unlike Maud, she had to take care of a mother that drove her crazy and reminded her daily about her shortcomings and mistakes. B later said that she didn't know Estelle Getty suffered throughout her time on the Golden Girls with terrible anxiety and memory problems. But she did come to love her on-screen mother very much. As we said in our feature episode on Getty, B called the Dorothy-Sophia relationship, quote, one of the most brilliant comedic duos I've ever known, end quote and loved how the size difference worked to heighten the comedy. The ever-escalating threats to return her mom to Shady Pines were cruel and hilarious and unique all at the same time. 
When pressed for her favorite episode, B almost always referenced an illegitimate concern, aka the one with the bit where Dorothy and Sophia dress in costume as Sonny and Cher to sing I Got You Babe at a mother-daughter beauty pageant. She also loved the scenes with Dorothy's yuts of an ex-husband, Stan, saying, quote, she could be so mad at him and claim she hated him, but the lines were written to say that they obviously still loved each other, and so it became a comedic relationship that really paid off, end quote. She called co-star Herb Edelman, quote, lovely and a wonderful, funny, funny actor, end quote. Edelman will get his own feature episode in the coming season. B and Rue McClanahan hadn't stayed particularly close since the end of Maud, but they enjoyed having a chance to work together again, this time with different types of characters. B described Maud and Vivian as, quote, like Lucy and Ethel Mertz of the 70s, end quote. Before the Golden Girls, she had never worked with Betty White and later called her wonderful. However, as we talked about in our Betty White feature episode, their relationship wasn't exactly a great one. The crux of the issue was in how these two consummate professionals went about their business on set. Betty was loose in front of the studio audience, playfully engaging them between takes. She would seemingly have scripts memorized by the end of each table read. And B, on the other hand, wasn't there to goof around. She was there to work and work and work until the scene and her performance were up to her standards. B preferred to hammer out script problems rather than cut a line that maybe wasn't clicking. They were colleagues with different ways of working. B's son Matthew once told a magazine, it would make my mom unhappy that in between takes, Betty would go and talk to the audience. It wasn't jealousy, it was a focus thing. Mom unknowingly carried the attitude that it was fun to have somebody to be angry at. It was almost like Betty became her nemesis, somebody she could always roll her eyes about at work. End quote. Rue McClanahan said that B and Betty's relationship wasn't all she wished it could be. But those differences didn't stop them from putting on a great show or having lunch together every day. Matthew also said that they were friends and lived close enough to each other to visit. They also shared a mutual grief, as both of their elderly mothers passed away during the first season of the show. Betty wrote in her book that the first year's mother-daughter-focused scripts, quote, cut close to the edge for B and me, end quote. As with Maud, the Golden Girls brought B critical acclaim. She and her co-stars were all nominated for Emmys in the show's first four seasons. First, Betty White won Best Actress in a Comedy Series, then McClanahan a year later. Being third in line didn't sit well with B, according to McClanahan. When she won her Emmy, Rue felt that B, quote, wasn't able to be happy for me, even with the history we shared, end quote. Fortunately, by season three, all four ladies had statuettes, which Rue said made the set less awkward to be on. On the Golden Girls, they were able to push the envelope of network standards without the same interference that B had witnessed on Maud, and the outlandish nature of the stories gave her chances to branch out in a way she hadn't before. There were very few episodes that she didn't like, and the ones she didn't all seemed to involve an animal in some way. Betty White says they all hated filming The End of the Curse, where the girls raise minks for extra cash. As animal activists, they were all against the minks being farmed for fur. But as professionals, they pressed on with what would be the second season premiere. B also had an issue with A Long Day's Journey into Marinara, which featured a gag about Count Bessie, the piano-playing chicken. Betty remembers her co-star being concerned that the bird was being exploited. As the show entered its sixth season, B was already starting to think about an exit strategy. 
She felt that they weren't as hilarious as they had been, and frankly, the characters were all running out of places to go. She didn't enjoy that season, according to White, but signed on for one more that would be the last. Even then, B was talking about doing musicals, going overseas, and doing other non-Golden Girls projects. Her castmates were supportive of her decision, although not necessarily of the fate of the show. McClanahan wanted them to go on with a different roommate, but she was overruled. The producers pitched she, White, and Getty on the idea of the Golden Palace, and they accepted. In the final episodes, Dorothy falls in love and marries Blanche's Uncle Lucas, played by Leslie Nielsen. At that table read, director Lex Passaris said that B broke down in tears, which bled out to the rest of her co-stars. Her decision to leave was a hard one for her to make, but a real one as well. The wedding dress she had to wear wasn't to her liking. But the final, final gag, in which Dorothy comes back into the house twice more for goodbye hugs, was a satisfying conclusion. B adamantly refused to do another regular series, although she did play herself on multiple episodes of Showtime's Beggars and Choosers. She appeared as Larry David's mother on an episode of Curb Your Enthusiasm, and as a mysterious babysitter on an episode of Malcolm in the Middle, a part for which she was nominated for yet another Emmy. She also became a frequent guest on Celebrity Roasts, where she could both make and take some of the raunchiest insults ever. Eventually, B finally got to do what she really wanted to, sing on stage. She had never lost her fascination for the stage, and partnered with longtime friend and accompanist Billy Goldenberg for a live show in which B told stories, sang songs that meant a lot to her, told jokes, and occasionally recited recipes. All of the things she loved, including performing in her bare feet. I know none of you are going to believe this, but um, I was a very shy child. <laughs> no, I mean, you all know me because of those assertive women that I played on TV. You know, like emasculating my husband with God will get you for that, Walter. <laughs> or sending shivers through my mother with the words, Shady Pines. <laughs> but I was a very, very shy, very withdrawn child. Possibly because even at age eight, I think I was five, nine and a half in my stocking feet. <laughs> you know, and with a very deep voice. Oh, Billy, can you imagine the humiliation I felt age eight answering the phone and hearing, good evening, sir, may I speak with the woman of the house? What started as a one-time charity performance to benefit the Alley Forney Center, which focuses on helping homeless LGBT youth, became B. Arthur on Broadway, Just Between Friends, a one-woman stage show that toured across the country and earned a Tony nomination for Best Special Theatrical Event. Some reviewers complained that the show wasn't autobiographical enough, but that wasn't what B wanted to do. Goldenberg said that writers they brought in didn't get it. So instead, quote, I sat B down with a tape recorder and asked her to tell every funny story she'd ever told me with her particular inflection and with her typically funny asides and comments. We had it transcribed, we edited it, and we had a show, end quote. B and Billy performed the show under three different names until 2006, when she was 83 years old. Her final televised appearance was at the 2008 TV Land Awards, when she reunited with White and McClanahan to receive the show's Pop Culture Award. In April of 2009, Beatrice Arthur died of cancer at the age of 86. Lights were dimmed on Broadway for one minute in her honor. In her will, 
she bequeathed to the Alley Forney Center $300,000, and the organization named a building and a fund for acquiring more residences after her. At the time of her passing, Norman Lear said, quote, No one seems less gone to me or more alive to me than B. I'm sure that's because laughter lingers, and no one made me laugh like B. Arthur. End quote. B. Arthur's presence and influence are still everywhere, even in some surprising places. Her status as an icon and advocate for the gay community was cemented long before her partnership with the Alley Forney Center began. Comedian Gerard Carmichael, who had a critically acclaimed Norman Lear-type show of his own called The Carmichael Show, cited B. as a master of perfect timing. She's even in comic books, where Marvel's anti-superhero Deadpool has a somewhat unhealthy obsession with her. Star and producer Ryan Reynolds asked B's son Daniel for permission to use her likeness in the character's feature film. Daniel had met Reynolds while they were both working in TV in the early 2000s and came to like him. So he said B could pop up in the movie as long as Reynolds made a $10,000 donation to charity, which the actor dutifully did. Look for the B. Arthur shirt Wade Wilson is wearing before he goes full Deadpool in the movie. She even inspires other people's artwork. Boston artist Mike Dennison has twice embarked on projects in which he draws a different B. Arthur every day of the year. He's in the middle of his second run of B. A Day right now. He's also done Betty A Day and Rue A Day, but only B. gets a second go around. You can see his art at Mike Dennison, that's D-E-N-I-S-O-N dot com. In 2013, a painting of a nude bee, done by artist John Curran in 1991, sold for almost $2 million. Bee once said in an interview that she felt blessed with, quote, 20 years spent in that little box. Her advice to budding performers was to get out in front of an audience and just do it. Her belief was that comedy is about truth, not timing. It was about being fearless, which sometimes means not being afraid to wait for just the right moment. She was one of the most famous television stars of her era, but was also disarmingly down-to-earth. She was a perfectionist about her art, but could be incredibly nurturing and helpful to those just starting out. She was intimidating and warm and hilarious and deadly serious and extremely guarded and extraordinarily giving. There will never be another beat. I'm just going to come out and say, Dorothy is my favorite golden girl. And it's taken me a long time to truly realize the genius of Beatrice Arthur. She could deal some of the most blistering put-downs ever filmed or devastate a room with laughs without ever uttering a word, which is something truly unique. While researching this episode, I was shocked and disappointed to learn that there are no biographies of her or a memoir of her own writing. But after learning more about her inclination for privacy, I understood why this was. A lot of the first-hand information for this episode came from an interview B did with the Emmy Legends site in the early 2000s. It's definitely worth the time, about two hours or so. It's also fascinating because it's the real her, for everything that means. When she tells these stories about her career, that she's clearly told a thousand times in her life, she lights up and you are absolutely riveted. When she doesn't like or doesn't understand a question, or when the interviewer hesitates, things get a little cringeworthy. The interviewer often uses the notorious non-question lead-in, could you talk about when trying to get B to open up about something. Anyone that's watched a coach or player post-game press availability will recognize this dreaded phenomenon and why people hate it. Seriously, kids, don't do that. But like she said, she hated bullshit. 
for all the things she left us, that might be the best one to remember. You can donate to the Ali Forney Center by going to their website, aliforneycenter.org. That's A-L-I-F-O-R-N-E-Y center.org and clicking the donate link at the top of the page. Next time on Golden Girls Sports, we parade every other Golden Girls horse racing reference around the park. Place your bets on who has the most. Golden Girls Sports is written, produced, and narrated by Dan Saracini. The theme is Golden Sunrise, instrumental version, by Josh Woodward, and is available at freemusicarchive.org. Visit goldengirlsportspodcast.com for show notes and references, and follow us on Twitter at Golden Girls SP. Thanks for listening.